Hi everyone, I'm John Offit, I'm a broadcaster based in the UK and welcome to Different Minds, a podcast series that looks at neurodiversity, the different ways our brains can work and interpret information. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Timo, the award-winning visual planning app designed to support routine and time management. The app empowers users to schedule visual routines that work. Users say that Timo can actually help reduce stress and support executive function. Head to your app store and type T-I-I-M-O into the search bar to learn more. I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Wells today, a young autistic comic who has supported Frankie Boyle and Alexis Sale on tour. Joe is also an author and has written a book about his experiences of OCD. Joe, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. No worries. So, Joe, how are you finding lockdown and everything? Oh, do you like? And and I think this was not representative of autistic people, but for yep. me, lockdown one, I absolutely loved and. I could just immerse myself in things which interest me. I didn't have to go to kind of, um, I think I realized how tiring, you know, just going to like physical meetings and stuff like that. And also, even though I enjoy socializing, how tiring socializing is. And yeah, so I I, I really loved lockdown one. You know, I I, I was quiet and I sat in the garden reading a book and it it was brilliant. Amazing, amazing stuff. So let's, let's just kind of rewind a little. I, I want to talk about OCD to start with. Am I right in thinking you had an OCD diagnosis, Joe? Yeah, so that was when I was a child, teenager. How old would I have been? 11, 12 years old, so ch- uh, uh, just before I was a teenager. It's interesting, people, I, I know that the, um, the terminology has moved away from suffered from now, which I, I, if I'm honest, I don't quite understand because for me it felt very much like suffering. Yeah, um, yeah. But I was affected by OCD. Um, from definitely from the age of eight, and and I think that there were possibly things before that, but yeah. um, I guess that kind of clinical OCD, where I was really kind of trapped in, uh, you know, obsessive thoughts and compulsive behaviour, began at eight. I was diagnosed and went through CBT um, when I was twelve, through yeah. kind of twelve, thirteen, and then kind of continued using that stuff, um, and then fifteen, sixteen, it, it became not a problem for me I, I, well well I say became like that happened naturally you know that the the CBT worked for me and and um I worked really hard on it and I got to a point where uh, I I wasn't affected by it you know I think it's something which I've still got to look out for and I think I still have those that I I, I I still can fall into those kind of thinking traps I definitely ruminate on on things a lot but um it, it's not something which is debilitating for me in the way that it was yeah so this led you to write a book about OCD, um, Touch and Go Joe, in, in, which was published in 2006. Just tell us a bit about how that came about. My mum told me that if I wrote about having OCD, I could become a millionaire. <laughs> and uh, how old have I been? 14, 15 years old when I started writing it about it. It was around the time Cajun Chaos came out. And um, yes, yeah, so there were lots of these books written by young people coming out so I think that not to to downplay it I think I wasn't but I was in the right place at the right time where um people were looking for books written by young people talking about mental health published when I was 16 17. So in terms of your book then you you describe the, your your experiences with OCD and 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 how you felt I guess before and after your diagnosis. 
Yeah, of, of the OCD diagnosis. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. um, you know, it's been interesting that the part two, uh, two-ish years ago, having the autism diagnosis, um, you know, see, I can now look back and see it more in that context. Um, but yeah, the, the book is about being eight years old, worrying about poisoning, contamination, those kind of thoughts and obsessive thoughts and, and compulsive behaviours developing into into different things that I had to do and then going through CBT and then getting to a place where it wasn't a, a difficulty for me. So that's, that's the story of, of the book. So after you published your book, did you give your own talks to other people across the country in terms of um, your own adversities? Yeah, I started um, doing some things at universities and for by that point my mum was working for a uh, a children's mental health service so she she has a kind of connection so that i could go and do talks at local cam services and things like that uh, yeah I, I would travel around doing talks i had a kind of written hour talk which was all about was kind of a similar narrative to the book really and we'll talk about my experiences and go around to to anyone that would listen really and, and was it that kind of getting getting up in front of audiences that uh, you realised that you preferred to perhaps make jokes instead? And is that how you kind of ended up working in, in stand-up? Uh, yes, definitely, yeah. There, there were little jokes in the talks and I thought I could do this, um, you know, and I, and I was watching comedy and becoming a comedy fan as well. So I thought I could, I could do this as well. So just tell us about your first sort of stand-up uh, comedy gig then. And it must have been a, quite a, a scary thing to do. Yeah, it's funny looking back, isn't it? Because the, the first few shows I did were the most kind of gentle, art centre, um, nice, nice gigs. Yeah. But when, you, when you're, yeah. it's your first gig, they seem very nerve-wracking <laughs> and they seem a lot rowdier than, than they actually are. I remember I, I emailed the promoter and said, because I'd written, written loads of material, and I emailed the promoter and said, oh, hi, I was wondering if I could do a set I can do anything between five minutes and half an hour or something like that, um, which is ridiculous. You know, the, 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 yeah, that's like, you know, thinking I might start running and going, well, I'll probably start with a marathon. But I, yeah, it gave, gave me 10 minutes, which is longer than most people. Most people start with a five minute set. It gave me 10 minutes. Yeah, and, and it, it went well and um, just, just went, went from there, really. Um, I was very political as a teenager, so I did, did lots of political material. Um, and that's kind of changed a bit in recent years. So is that the uh, Joe Wells doesn't want to do political comedy anymore? Is that the show that you did at Edinburgh Fringe last year? Yeah, and I I, I realised what appealed to me about political comedy was that I had this kind of strong feeling of feeling very angry. And I think I've always kind of been drawn to angry things, <laughs> even though I'm not someone that's people would necessarily describe as an angry person but I think that uh you know to kind of psychoanalyze that I th- think that I had a lot you know growing up autistic and not knowing that I was autistic and not fitting in and going well I don't understand why I can't make friends and everyone else makes friends I, I don't understand why um everyone else finds all these things easier but um that 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 really drew me to political comedy oh angry and I wanted to shout a better way to do it than with, with political comedy. And that show 2019 was, there's big problems with comedy and I'm not, I don't want to kind of rose tint it. And yeah. I'm going into comedy with a kind of relative amount of kind of social privilege. But I do think that comedy is a very 
certainly the live comedy circuit is quite inclusive of neurodivergent people, certainly compared to a lot of other industries. Right. And, you know, there's so, so many people who think differently, even if they don't have a, a kind of diagnosis or don't identify as neurodivergent or whatever. Yeah. You know, but almost by definition, if you're a comedian, your job is to think about things differently and look at things differently. So I think that when I, so I went into political comedy, angry of the world, and then I met all these comedian friends, and I felt a real sense of blood. I really kind of identify with comedians, you know, and, you know, and I felt like I belonged. And I think that was the the that show was, you know, obviously I still have political opinions and I think there's still political things I feel very strongly about but I don't to shout about stuff like I did and to get stuff off my chest like I did going into comedy because I'm in an industry where I feel like I belong and I feel like people like me because I'm different not in spite of me being different and I don't feel like I need to pretend to be different yeah um comedy you know and that that's that's what the show was about was was you, you know once you've once you've gained a sense of belonging yeah and you're not angry anymore and you don't get as yeah. riled up about political stuff then where do you where do you go from there because then you've lost your your shtick and you can't um can't do comedy anymore and you're back at square one so yeah. that that was the kind of the the premise of the show really so would you say that you've always felt different there to people while you were growing up and that you, you didn't fit in? And, and because of that, it's going to give you the, it's helped shape your kind of um, your, your comedy uh, technique. Yeah, definitely. Isn't it? But, but, you know, I couldn't make friends like work out what other people were doing. And I am writing a book at the moment about neurodiverse people and that there's so many of these stories, which I just relate to so completely that I feel like all my, when I talk about my own life now, I feel like I'm copying other people, but <laughs> I am. Um, you know that I, that I just trying to work out how to fit in and that kind of thing about you know it feels like everyone else has has a script and you don't was such a recurring thing from my childhood of, of just like trying to work out what people were doing that made them fit in yeah um and I think I've always seen myself as an outsider and I've always had I've always felt like any social interaction is kind of on borrowed time I think that's something which I still really hold on to where I feel like if I'm chatting to someone at some point they're gonna want me to leave and I think that was kind of from growing up and not being able to do I say not being able to do you know not being able to do social things in the way that people expected me to do yeah. them. Can you tell us about your autism diagnosis then so when was that and, and and was it a huge relief after you received the diagnosis? You know, I feel really, um, I have very complicated feelings on this. So the answer is 2019. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I really felt like I need to have this. And I think when I looked at why did I feel that I needed it, it was, I think it was coming from a, a was probably an unhealthy place is that like a lot of my lay things wrong or, you know, and, and eye contact has been a big thing for me my, my whole life where I've hated it and I'm so conscious of it and, um, you know, and have to force myself to do it. And, I'm, and I worry that then I'm doing it too intensely or that people think I'm weird or odd. And, um, and I think that my 
part of my reasoning for seeking that diagnosis was that people would go for other people to understand why I was weird or odd. And, but what I believe is that people should be, regardless of any diagnosis, my motivation, and this isn't a, this is a, a personal comment about my own motivation for seeking that diagnosis. This isn't me saying diagnosis are good or bad, but my motivation for going into that, I think able to excuse my difference when really I think my value system is that I think that difference is is good yeah. and, and that um, we shouldn't be excusing it if someone's different um, and that's how I treat other people I think you often like it's very easy to to see your value system when you look at other people if I meet someone who's a bit weird or odd I go cool like well they're, they're unusual and, and you know there are many there are a thousand good reasons for seeking diagnosis and, and um, you know and I think it, it, there's a there's reasons to to for people to be able to say they are autistic so that we can talk about an experience which we've had and talk about how a group you know as a group um there are barriers and 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 you know and so on but i think my main driver for seeking that diagnosis was what was to be able to make excuses for difference and i think and that was one of the things i talked about in in the show in your show you you talk about um what it's like having a non-autistic sibling uh, uh, and that your sibling is very severely non-autistic, and that they are shit at maths, and they have all the that they have all the symptoms such as uh, like they like making eye contact, they they're brilliant at loud sudden noises. Um, so you tell us a bit about that. Uh, so I think the thing which I always try to do with comedy that is I want to avoid being self-deprecating about being autistic. So I think I always want to do the. The, the routine I never want to do is to go, oh, I'm autistic. I said this thing that was wrong and I look like an idiot now, aren't I stupid? Um, I want to do stuff which kind of, because um, I think the way I see the world is correct. And um, so I want to do stuff that kind of flips, um, flips, flips, flips things around a bit and um, talks about why neurotypical people are strange to me. Um, mm-hmm. I've got a clip which I can play you, which I, I think illustrates that. I'm uh, Joe, I'm an autistic man. We got autistics then? No! <laughs> I thought we killed off during the pandemic. We've <laughs> got DNRs in our files, that's fine. <laughs> I am probably diagnosing everything, so if you heckle me, then technically that is a hate crime. Just <laughs> 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 uh, I can perform to not autistic people, I'm not like not autistic. My brother's not autistic. He's, he's very severely not autistic. <laughs> he's got all the symptoms. He, he loves making eye contact. Uh, he's really into loud, sudden noises. He's, uh, shit at maths. <laughs> that last one's not fair. That's not true. It's not true that not autistic people are shit at maths. A lot of you can be really good at maths. With, with the right support, you can achieve it. <laughs> really clever i really really enjoyed listening to that so uh, where, 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 when did you perform that joe where was it 
Uh, so that was just that. Look, I think actually that was the kind of first bit of material I did on stage after lockdown. So, um, yeah, so I was quite nervous getting back on stage at that gig. Um, yeah, hope it didn't show. <laughs> <laughs> and what response did you get to that gig? Uh, well, that, that clip I got online and, and went, went pretty viral, which was exciting. Um, yeah. So yeah, I should say I don't, I don't actually have a not autistic brother. I've got a not autistic sister. Yeah. But I, I changed it to brother because I wanted to challenge the stereotype that only women can be not autistic. Yes. So I thought I'd get around. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the feedback was really good. I think it, um, it tapped into what a, a lot of people um, uh, think, you know, that... that um, a lot of discussion around autism comes from a place of uh, why are these people weird? I think that that's the the hypothesis a lot of a lot of discussion and research around autism. And that's so for example, there was a I saw a, a research paper about why are autistic people more likely to be atheists? And to me, the interesting question is why do neurotypical people believe in things which there probably isn't any evidence are real? <laughs> Uh, that paper is framed as like why are these people weird and and different and i think there's lots of the most extreme ones there was one do you see the thing recently about um crime and immoral behavior and it basically posited that autistic people are less likely to commit crimes um and that's kind of one of the symptoms of autism is that you're you're less likely to, to do immoral things even if you could get away with it and that shows that you don't have empathy because you you, even if you could get away with it you don't understand that and you'll still do the right thing <laughs> and uh and to me you know, that's so obviously the question is what why are neurotypical people more likely to yeah. to you know to um do bad things because they think they can get away with it but um but it's framed as why are these people different and i think that good comedy makes you look at things a different way you know mm. i think um Yes, it's something like Nanette, uh, the Hannah Gadsby show, you know, that the reason that was so successful was because it was um, getting people to look at look at things a, a different way. Yeah. Um, and it, it actually made you look at, she did material, and then it made you look at that material a different way, which I think was what was very clever about it. So it kind of, it was like a double um, making you look at things a different way. Um, yeah, so I hope that's what that... Um, uh, and it has a cheap joke about media studies as well, which people like. Yeah, I really find that really funny. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I, I did media studies as well at university. Sorry, yeah, so that, that was the one one bit of um, people getting annoyed about was was that <laughs> I think media studies get um, annoyed that they're always the butt of the joke. Whereas I did an English literature degree, which is very difficult and <laughs> respected. <laughs> and I think that yeah, some of the best comedy will. I think that's what you can do with comedy is you can point at the audience and go, look at you. You know, most audiences are going to be large majority neurotypical. You can go, look at you. You're all weird. This is why you are weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. Someone like, uh, do you know Henning Venn, the German comedian? Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, that, that's what Henning does is he goes, look, look at you British people. You're all very strange to me, <laughs> you know, and, and he's not going out going, I'm weird because I'm German. He's going, I'm an outsider, so I can tell you British people that you are weird in these ways. Yeah. And I think that's what I try to I hope comes across that I'm doing with kind of um, uh, autism is going as an outsider to neurotypicals. I think the way that you think about these things is weird and odd 
um, and I can present it to you in a way that makes you realise that you're a bit weird and odd. Because as you say, what's so clever about your act is, I guess, it's kind of turning it on its head, isn't it? And, and often, as you say, um, you know, when, when, when people think of autistic people, they, it's about how can we adapt uh, and, and, and assist them so that they can fit into a neurotypical world. Whereas, as you say, why, why, why shouldn't it be the other way around? Why isn't it about things that neurotypical people can do to, to, to adapt them, themselves so that they can fit into a neurodivergent world? Yeah, and, and, and thank you for saying it's clever. But I also think that lots of comedians do. I think this is quite a kind of thing that a lot of comedians do, you know, that like comedians will often try to position themselves as outsiders. You know, if, if you're uh, quite posh, then you'll, you'll kind of ham that up and be, well, I'm very posh and I'm, I'm looking, I'm talking to you about what, what you're like here in this, you know, in this town that's a bit rough, I shouldn't be here, you know, or, or the other way around. How do people generally react when they, you know, when they say to you, oh, you're an autistic comic? I think that people have different ideas and the kind of definitions of autism or being autistic has have changed so much. So, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, it must be Asperger's and things like that, whereas that term is going out. Um, but then also, like, I, I think that the terms are going to change in the future, aren't they? I think the way that different um, words we use to describe people are, are not fixed where they are now. So I think that there's an element to which I think people's image of um, autistic people is, um, uh, you know, people who maybe aren't able to speak. Um, and, you know, there, there's a kind of stereotype and I don't think I necessarily fit that stereotype. Um, but in other ways, I think, I've, you know, there, there's things which I fit quite neatly into. And do you ever get people, Joe, that say, well, you know, if you're autistic, you must have kind of challenges with communication. So, you know, being a, being a stand-up comic requires very, very, you'd have to be very articulate and, 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 and very intelligent in terms of your communication and reading the audience. And some people might have a misconception that how can an autistic person do that? Oh yes, definitely, yeah, and that's and, and I, get, I get that online a lot, and I think it's um, it, it's a it's a weird take, isn't it, that um, people think, you know, the the job description of a stand up comedian is someone who can um, have a one way rehearsed conversation for a long time on topics which interest them, yeah, um, and it's a space where you can say things socially and appropriately, and it doesn't matter, yeah, um, it's a very clear, it's a conversation of very clear feedback, you know, I think if if I um, uh, in interviews like this, I always have to resist saying, "Does that make sense?" Because I, I, often when I talk to people, I don't. I worry that um, I'm not explaining myself properly. But um, on stage, I completely know if I've explained myself properly. I know whether a joke works because people laugh at it. Yeah. Um, you know, and and from experience, I know that when you do new material, sometimes a joke doesn't quite land. But if you think there's an idea, you can rework it and make it land. And you know, I think it's very. Um, I think people have a view of like things like communication that, they're, that they're, it's just one straight spectrum. So you've got one end, you've got people who cannot communicate at all. And then the other end, you've got people who are incredibly articulate and they're going to communicate completely. Whereas yeah. actually that's not how communication works. You know, I, I am very good at, well, I, <laughs> I was about to say, I'm very good at comedy, which sounds very egotistical, <laughs> but I can um and that doesn't that communication doesn't feel difficult or tricky to me but being at a part what you know one-to-one conversation on a topic i've kind of got that done 
more than two or three people talking to is very difficult to kind of measure what you've got all those added factors of when you when you come in and when you speak um and where the topics of conversation go and and you don't uh, you want to kind of come in on things which you know about but don't want to um you know there's all these really complicated rules around those kind of conversations whereas comedy is is something which i in some ways it's a kind of simpler conversation Mm. to get Mm. i think that when people say that it's all like it's just that it's nerve-wracking isn't it that's the people find it nerve-wracking that people assume it's kind of complex communication because they've been nervous about doing it um and that's different to something being something being nerve-wracking is is different to something being difficult yeah i guess like when i think of comedy i think of the timing is obviously crucial and and kind of being able to respond to the audience's reactions and maybe you can't predict the way that the audience is going to respond and therefore you need to be very flexible in in how you respond to that in terms of your act yeah but then audiences are fairly as a mass they're fairly kind of um they're not very nuanced in the way they respond to things you know (laughs) (laughs) they laugh at things they won't laugh at things if it goes really badly they'll boo you it's not like having a you know like a a work meeting where there's all different types of dynamics in play where you know one person's the boss and there's that kind of element and there's someone else who who you know is it has their people have their different agendas and stuff like that and that becomes very complicated whereas with a comedy audience it's kind of like you know, I have an I I'll have an idea of the kind of topics which they might like and what things they might you know a rowdier audience. You need a bit of kind of swagger and com- and to be extra confident and loud. But then maybe it just seems things things seem simple to you if if you get them, don't they? Yeah. And, and also, I spent a lot of time working on doing comedy. You know, I've been doing it for a while, and yeah. I. And this is one of the things with the OCD stuff that I feel like what I've learned to do is to, to I, I'm someone who will ruminate on stuff. And I think that I've learned to channel that. So if I do a gig, I'm thinking about it the whole way home and replaying it. And that, where, you know, that is something which I also do with like a social interaction. If I think I've said the wrong thing, I'll replay it over and over again. I think that's unhealthy that I do that. But with a comedy gig, that's really useful. So if you can do a comedy gig, you've had that interaction. And then the whole train journey home, I'm running it over in my head and going, what if I said that? What if I said that differently? like if I replay like the line over and over in my head and think about like what intonation feels right, then yeah. the next time I'm going to be better at it. So, um, yeah. you know, I think I've, I've, it, 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 comedy I think is a, well, one of the biggest misconceptions about comedy is that it is a, um, that people are just funny and they get up and they be funny yeah. Um, yeah. and it's a natural thing. And I think that, and I think there are some people who are naturally very funny as comedians, um, but I think the bigger group of comedians is people who love comedy and they've, they're working hard and learning how to do comedy. And I'm definitely in, in that group of, um, you yeah. know, that I work hard at, at learning how to do it. 
So you mentioned this before about, you know, it's important that we kind of almost celebrate our differences. And obviously, as you know, neurodiversity is a viewpoint that, you know, brain differences are normal rather than deficits. But I guess some people say that neurodiversity is, is dividing the autism community rather than bringing it closer together. I wonder if you had any thoughts around that, Joe. I think that way of looking at things, of going, this person is different. Let's try to get rid of all of the assumptions that that difference is bad. Um, and let's try and reframe this as a good thing and see where that takes us as a society. Let's start to think about how... Um, uh, social how let's let's take a, a way of looking at this is to say that the the barriers here are social rather than innate in that person that that way of looking at things and rethinking things yeah. I see as like a useful tool to move towards a, a, a you know a, a better world and um, a world where we look at, at things differently and where people are you know where we benefit from people's difference and where, where we uh where those people where people benefit from being included so i, I don't think it's like uh i think it's, it's what, what the, the arguments about neurodiversity is always like they always come from like the the kind of from one end of going well this person is is um isn't able to do this thing and that and that's you can't tell me that's a good that's a good thing yeah but i'd still say that for most neurodivergent people if not all neurodivergent people the the, the bulk of the barriers that people face are social environmental things yeah rather than than um mm. which are you know innately um you know wrong in inverted commas about them. yeah so in that way then it suggests that society needs to change rather than autistic people yeah and, and i think that i think actually when you get the, i i think that a lot of these kind of you say that the kind of autistic community is, is divided on, and I know there's kind of a big rifts, particularly on Twitter, which I think is just yeah. the worst yeah. thing to happen yeah. to society, <laughs> you know, between kind of autism parent communities and things like that, and there's these kind of rifts and arguments. But actually, I think if you kind of got those people in, in a room, um, you know, actually, I think that most people within that kind of broader um, kind of autistic community think that the the priorities for for you know um making things better should be social change should be thinking about um uh you know making schools and workplaces and so on more inclusive and and um you know that the, they're the kind of main priorities before we before we think before we ever think about kind of changing people if that's even something which you'd ever want to do which i don't think it would be i think most people would agree that the priority is is social change rather than than you know changing people and you know kind of cures and stuff like that i know those things exist on on the fringes but i, I think that the the bulk of autistic people um think that the the priority is social change but maybe i'm just in my bubble i don't know no 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 that that, that all makes perfect sense um, Joe, I want to ask you a question that I ask all my podcast guests. If you had the opportunity, what advice would you give your younger self? I, th I think there's such like a cliched thing, isn't there? But it's that <laughs> it's okay to be different. Yeah. Um, and that who you are is good enough. 
it's not just good enough it's, it's brilliant um so i i think that, that it's it's interesting i i've been um one of the things which has come out from this book that i'm writing is that idea of being yourself and it's so, something people say all the time you know if someone's going on, on a on a date they go just be yourself yeah um but actually all the messages from society particularly aimed that come to autistic people but but also just generally are don't be yourself that that's a message which you which you you don't hear straight up said um you know if you're going to a job interview no one says whatever you do don't be yourself but i think that is a message which you which is still um uh which people still hear and they say it in more subtle ways it would be you know you can't just talk about that um you know you can't jump into the conversation by talking about that you have to make sure you look people in the eyes um you know and all, all these kind of things you're, you know you're being a fussy eater you can't eat that you can't just eat that food all those kind of little things what they are saying is don't be yourself yeah. um so actually the the advice to be yourself is um even though it's said a lot, is a radical message and is a um, kind of, uh, you know, message which goes against the kind of um, pervasive culture. Is that what I mean to say? Yeah, yeah. that makes perfect sense, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for talking to us today, Joe. Really appreciate your time. And um, yeah, look look forward to following your career with interest and uh, keep the good work. Thank you. Thank you for having me.